Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is a special edition of Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Hello, everyone, and welcome to those of you that might be first-time viewers and listeners of the program. If you don't know, Closer Look is all about curating conversations that intersect with our quality of life. And for this special live stream edition, we get to talk about those R words, race and racism. Not only how topics related to race and racism are taught in a classroom, but at what educational level should it begin? And also, why related curriculum is now being labeled as, quote, divisive concepts. All that and more. And we'll begin with our big three. Now, it's not their official collective title, but uh, I kind of think of them as our own version of the academic Fugees. So first, let's welcome Nsinga Burton, the co-director of the Film and Media Management Concentration at Emory University in the Department of Film and Media and the editor-in-chief of the Burton Wire. Also, Ilya Davis, a philosophy professor at the Morehouse College. I have to say it like that. I've been told the Morehouse College and the director of New Students and Transition Programs. And Maurice Hobson, a historian and associate professor of Africana Studies and the vice chair of the Scholarship and Creative Board for Georgia State's Center for Studies on Africa and its Diaspora. They don't have T-shirts, but if they did, it would say Closer Looks Big Three. Welcome back to all of you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And for our viewing audience, listen, I know you got questions and comments. Go ahead. Put them in the chat portion of Facebook or Twitter, or however you're listening, or YouTube, and we'll get to those as soon as we can. But I want to begin with this, and Professor Burden, you get to go first. When you hear this term, divisive concepts, what goes through your mind? Well, I think it's interesting um, what people perceive to be divisive and what qualifies as divisive and when. Um, And the idea that if you actually study uh, history, you study events through the lens of history, you know, I study media through the lens of history, that in some way, shape or form, that's going to automatically uh, divide people based on where they may fall or their ancestors may fall uh, in terms of who are the, you know, for example, oppressors or who are who are the oppressed. So I think it's um, I'm quite fascinated at this um, current um, climate where people are concerned about divisiveness um, I'm concerned about its impact on uh, on on different populations, and uh, I'm, I'm interested in knowing more about where it's coming from because um, we've been discussing these issues for a very long time, and people seem to be okay when uh, people of African descent are uh, the oppressed and have to uh, live with kind of information, um, but they don't seem to be okay when it is the other way around. So I find it interesting. Interesting. That's a good word. Professor Davis, what about you? 
when you hear that term, divisive concepts? Well, the term divisive concepts seems incoherent without adequate context. And so I think people use it making um, assumptions and presume that people have the, the adequate context to understand the term. So on the face of it, prima facie divisive, I, I wouldn't understand what you're getting at. Are you saying it undermines the integrity of truth? Are you saying it misrepresents history? And so I think it needs to be, uh, it needs to be more focused. So if I were to take advantage of the opportunity of my own interpretive lens, if you will, then I would have to say divisive in terms of undermining the integrity of history and an adequate contextual basis. I say it doesn't do that. So when people talk about race, it does require place, time, and contextual understandings. Of course it does. So I think the push here has to be, what are you referring to, under what context, time, place, location, and with whom you're engaged in conversation? Because divisive is usually understood to be a pejorative representation. All right, Professor Hobson. Uh, first and foremost, uh, good afternoon. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, when I think of the term, or when I hear the term divisive concept uh, concepts, the first thing I think of is who has the privilege of naming it divisive? That's a privilege. That's a component of privilege. And uh, as uh, Professor Burton said before, and as Professor Davis said before, you know, it, it really is one of those things to where those that are in power have the right to name when it comes to that. And when those that are in power are really focused upon to see what actions have taken place by those in power, then it becomes, quote unquote, divisive because it places uh, it, it, it forces us to focus on the lens on who is deliberating this aspect of power, which can also work in terms of oppression. And we should know the reason why we're having this conversation, well, there's a number of reasons why we're having this conversation, but mainly because we've seen here lately in the next last few years, we've seen and they have been Republican led legislation and state legislatures and folks can argue about that all day and you can send me your email but we've seen that these are republican-led legislation and policies regarding these divisive concepts particularly on college campuses and that's been increasing professor hobson i want to stay with you because when you think of a, a college setting an academic setting that is where you are mostly you want students to be critical thinkers to have their own ideologies and reaction to what you all are teaching. You're not trying to make them feel a certain way, but you're certainly getting wanting to get them to have their own, their own approach to something as, as it relates to race or racism. Dr. Hosman, you, you, you teach graduate students, correct? I teach graduate students. I teach undergraduate students. And I, I have a, uh, I have a, an equation that I use to how I help students understand, you know, issues around discrimination. And, and so um, isms. I use this this equation. Isms equals prejudice plus the use and the abuse of power. Power creates policy and policy creates law. Now, the thing about that is the reason I use isms is we can interchange that ageism, racism, sexism, homophobism, whatever it is. What we're talking about is that there is a group that may be in power, but that also has a prejudice. And when they have a prejudice, they can assert their power to create policies to discriminate. So this is the, the concept that I often use. Now, I'm going to use something that is kind of easygoing instead of something more uh, hectic. Uh, you act I, like I, you're I, in your I, class right now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> listen, uh, I am a Georgia State Panther uh, sports fan, but I'm going to use the University of Alabama and Georgia for this particular perspective, okay, <laughs> because of a recent national championship experience by the University of Georgia. 
I tell my students, I grew up in Alabama. If I'm an Alabama fan and you all are my students and you're Georgia fans, and when you turn in every paper, I give you an F on every paper. I don't read it. I just give you an F because I have this prejudice. Then what happens is at the end of the class, you get an F in the course. It's not done fairly, but it's based on a prejudice. And the fact that I have power as your professor, it then is able to kind of, it's able to create something that can be seen as discrimination. And so this is the thing about understanding, you know, all aspects of isms equals prejudice plus the use and the abuse of power is we have to understand it from an aspect of policy. And we also have to, we, we have to acknowledge our own privileges in terms of how we adjudicate on these things. Professor Davis, are you able as a black man, you identify as a black man when you are teaching about race and racism, is your job to be objective, neutral, fair? Because as a journalist, I get all that. And I'll tell you my answer after you all finish. Well, philosophically, we're going to have a problem with objective, but I think I can understand the point being made. What I normally tell students, and if we're going to do the, the pedagogical thing, I'll say what I say to my students, like Brother Hobson, is I tell them racism is um, seems to be similar to the way sexism functions for men, right? And so the idea is these are cultural ways of being in the world. We're all born into culture. And at some point in your life, in your development, you have to make a decision as to how that is going to infringe upon your capacities to engage with others. Notions of freedom. So even though I was born into culture, I have to decide that I have been I have been afforded certain opportunities that women have not, that gay brothers and sisters have not, that trans have not. I don't take that to be a personal affront to me. I understand it. I see it functioning in society. So to the degree to which this happens with race, you need to admit when you have an advantage, whether or not it is a self-ascription of advantage, there's a societal, institutional, ideological advantage that's been afforded you. So when I talk to predominantly African-American students, I am trying to somehow imbue in them an understanding these are not natural dispositions, they're cultural, but even so, they are real, they have fundamental impact, material and otherwise, in your life such that you have to determine how you're now going to function within the very shadow of these, these isms, as Professor Hobson so articulately represented. Thank you so much. Professor Burton, as an academic, as someone who's yeah, teaching... I mean yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, race is a social construction, but racism is real. And so, you know, we can't pretend that now that uh, society has evolved, allegedly, um, <laughs> that we now no longer see race. It's not important. We don't have to be reminded of it. It's not a, a factor when our the foundation of this nation has been based on racism and different categories of race, different, not just ra uh, race, but gender, um, sexual identity, all kinds of categories. Um, and so to just kind of dismiss that because it makes people feel bad is that it is ridiculous. It's like, well, why would you feel bad, right? The same people who say, oh, I wasn't born then, so I don't have anything to do with it. Now all of a sudden feel bad because their ancestors have something to do with it. You understand it's incongruent as Dr. Uh, Davis would say, uh, it doesn't really match up. And so those who are empowered um, should not have the power to further define the classroom experiences of anyone, particularly those who are historically disenfranchised and have had that happening. You know, uh, in terms of African-Americans, uh, we are more than slavery and MLK. Uh, but if you leave it up to people who have been in power uh, for the last 200 years, um, that is okay for us to learn constantly and for us to uh, diminish 
make invisible or not address all the other wonderful, uh, joyous uh, and important events that have happened in the lives of black Americans. So let me stay with you then, Professor Burden. Why then do you believe, again, through your lens, that because folks take divisive concepts and they throw in CRT and then politicians grab onto this and use that as a as a rallying call. Is this solely because this is just politics right now? That there is not a real concern about whether or not critical race theory or device, the, the divisive concepts are actually being taught. Well, most people don't know what critical race theory means, including academics. <laughs> so I just find it fascinating that people want to get rid of it at the elementary school level. Let me just go ahead and save you, save you the time. It's not taught at the elementary level. It's not taught middle school. It's not taught in high school and college. You're lucky to get it if you get it as an undergrad. And most times that you are, are taught it, you're taught as a graduate student when you are more than an adult. You're usually older than 21 years of age. You're typically between the ages of 25 and 35. So you're old enough to handle that kind of information and to know what to do with it um, in those cases. And so when we think about critical race theory, um, it's used because people don't read for comprehension. The American uh, education system has failed. We are number 30 in, the ter in terms of uh, developing nations that we pretend that we are still ahead of. We are not, not in math, not in science, not in culture, not in history, none of those top topics. We are uh, at the bottom of the developed nations um, in this way, shape and form. And it works because this country was founded on divisive, or you know, if we wanna use that words, divisive um, structures that are systemic. And so, yeah, it worked. You, you, t you keep people undereducated, you keep telling them the same thing that, you know, oh my gosh, uh, if we talk about race, it's gonna make people, it's gonna make your kids feel bad um, when if you, I have a six-year-old, um, they are able to navigate and negotiate all kinds of situations. She's coming home and telling me uh, about transgender um, identities, you know, stuff I need to know and don't, right? <laughs> so I don't know, you know, what they're afraid of, probably the imbalance of power or the fact that power shifts and is fluid and it moves um, and that one day we may be empowered. Um, the likelihood is very slim if you talk about African-Americans because there aren't enough of us in this country. Um, but, you know, if you want to go on paranoia um, and innuendo and, uh, as Dr. Davis talks, says it, issues that are out of context, then it's a rallying cry. Then people will respond because we don't teach critical thinking. We don't teach critical listening um, and we don't teach empathy, um, which are things you can teach in school systems that will help people be able to um, deal with this information once they get to graduate school. Professor Davis, politics over what's real and what isn't as it relates to race and racism, your thoughts? Uh, well, the racism is real. And as Professor Burton articulates, uh, both race and racism are real. They have material implications and outcomes. The problem is when we engage in conversations about racism and how it operates and functions, we have a tendency to displace reason. That is, we're trying to reason through an unreasonable position. So what we've decided was we should be able to find the intellectual and, and, and thinking errors. And if we can undermine those, then we can put forth an argument against them. These aren't rational decisions to dislike people. These are usually visceral responses to stimuli that have little or nothing to do with thinking. And so it's difficult to hear someone say, I dislike a class of people as Professor Hobson re represented with Alabama, Georgia. I probably would have done Morehouse and Howard, but <laughs> well, the, the, idea, the idea still represents the fact that it's it's very important to understand it's difficult to imagine that someone could reach such a, a an impactful conclusion with little to no reason. 
And so a lot of the conversations politically about critical race theory have little or nothing to do with reasoning to that conclusion. It's a matter of, I don't feel. And as we know as intellectuals, feel can wait till class is over. What we need to know is, do you have foundation, grounding, historical precedent, something that lends itself to a more objective perspective than you're merely feeling a certain way? Professor Hobson, this is about politics. Yes? No? Uh, I, I think a part, part of it is about politics. I mean, you know, uh, there politics has several different sides to it. I mean, there is the theater, the esoteric aspect of it, and then there's the actual policy in politics. And, you know, the sad part about it is, as Professor Burton laid it out, uh, and as Professor Davis laid it out, is, you know, the notion is to keep the public uh, miseducated. And when you keep them miseducated, you can throw things out and get them to react. But I also find that this conversation around critical race theory is at a fever's pitch, particularly when the world was able to witness how the United States really ate on itself in the year 2020, I mean, with pandemic and protest, but also amidst the conversations around reparations. Um, you know, most recently on Monday, I'm teaching a, 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 an African-American history course from 1865 to the present, and we were talking about Ilhaj Malik El-Shabazz, uh, Brother Malcolm, who actually took the issues of Black America to the United Nations as a group that had been uh, had witnessed genocide in particular ways. I mean, these are the same conversations that are being taken to the United Nations in terms of Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And so the thing about this is that now that there's a serious conversation around reparations, now that the U.S., uh, to some extent, the, 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 the more, uh, the darker sides of the U.S.'s history is being put out to the rest of the world, now it creates a PR problem. And in order to keep that PR problem down, we see things, we see oppression like, you know, voter suppression. We see issues around gender wage gaps. We see issues around miseducation and the lack of funding for public education or lack of health care and all of those different kinds of things. And all of that can play out in terms of racism, sexism, classism, ageism, whatever it is. And we want to remind our viewers and listeners, feel free to submit your question or comment via whatever platform you're watching. And as always, some of y'all email me because I have an email now and it says, Rose, ask your professors, what is an appropriate age in the talk about racism? Professor Hobson. Ask the question one more time, please. A, li a listener wants to know, what do you think is an appropriate age to talk to a young, a youngin about racism? Well, you know, this is a very interesting question because oftentimes I, I have a seven-year-old uh, and he's a very uh, curious and, and happy seven-year-old. And I love to see him be happy for as long as he possibly can be, because at some point in time, we are going to have these, the, uh, have to have some conversations. And in the summer of 2020, we had to have those conversations. But the appropriate age is, um, I don't think it's necessary to over-bombard young children with uh, adult problems. But there are times when things will, will come up. A case in point, uh, my son has a fascination with the police to the point where he has like a little police uniform, police outfit. Um, but when he was watching the news with his parents and saw George, uh, uh, Derek Chauvin and George Floyd, he looked at me and he says, why would he do that? Why would the policemen do that? The policemen are supposed to be good. And then it becomes a moment to where I have to discuss race, but I also have to be dad. And when you have to be dad, we have to always show our children that love supersedes any negative force that comes from the outside. And so I think that we have to have these conversations uh, when they are brought to us by our children. Uh, but we have to do it in love and, and, and respect. Professor Davis. 
I would suggest that you begin with love, as Brother Hobson represented again. The idea is when do you start teaching your your children the concept of love? They already have a familial tie, but when do you begin through language to articulate how those things may present themselves in the world? The second thing is, I believe you need to begin teaching as soon as they interact with others, because you do not want your child to engage a reality without the ability to, again, not knowing, but begin to understand that these types of events may transpire in their lives. So very quickly, one of my friends, his son, at a sixth grade, he was six years old, and he liked another young lady in his class who was not black. She was white. He liked her. She went home and says she reciprocated that like. She comes back to school and tells the six-year-old, I can't like you. You're black. Right? So that seems to have been an adequate, you know, moment or representation of when you begin is when they interact with others who may offend their humanity. Now, you don't use the same language. Of course not. <laughs> but let's begin again. Let's go back to love. Teach them that love is present. Sometimes love is absent. When love is absent, this is what I want you to do. I want you to love anyway. I want you to love yourself. I want you to respect yourself because others may not extend that to you. So it's important for us to always say, in light of modern technology, when is your child going to see offenses? And the last thing is, my daughters were looking at Without Sanctuary when they were four, five, and six, this book. Yes. And I showed them the pictures and their question, Daddy, what happened? Mm -hmm. That allots for my ability to say someone chose not to love. They chose mm -hmm. to hate. They chose to undermine the integrity and dignity of others. Don't ever engage in such an activity. Again, no adult conversation, but it's a conversation about how to extend your humanity from the age that a child can see and hear human offense. Professor Burton. Yeah, I mean, I co-sign on all that has been said. Um, as a media scholar uh, and media literacy, uh, the the, any opportunity that you have to talk about these important issues with your kids, you should take them. Most kids are smart and they're able to engage this type of information. Like I said, you know, kids will go to school and come back with things and you're not even ready to talk to them about it, but they've gotten it at school and not from a teacher or not from a curriculum, mm -hmm. but from a classmate who might be transgender or, or what have you, right? Uh, I'm on the transgender thing because that happened. But uh, my point is, is that, you know, these things happen. So you have to take these opportunities and sit down and look at the cartoon because cartoons are extremely violent. There you go. Um, or extremely violent. Look at the cartoon with your kids and tell them what is real, what is not real and in their language in ways that they can understand um, and give them the opportunity to um, engage with other groups of people. You know, we have to be active um, and we have to be active parents. And so that means one of the ways that we teach love and we teach empathy is to have them engage with people who don't always look like them, who aren't always doing things the same way, who aren't always celebrating the same holidays and things of that nature. Um, and so I think it's age appropriate. You know your children. Mm -hmm. um, you know what's appropriate for them. You know if they've had exposure to certain things or certain groups. You know if they haven't had that. You know if they're uh, a little more frail or you know if they're a go-getter. You know all those things about your kids. So you know what's best for your children and when it's best for your kids. But as a mother of a black child, I always take the opportunity to talk to her because I know what she's going to meet uh, out in the world. And, you know, people are like, oh, you're setting her up or why would you saddle her with that? Well, I'm 49 and uh, I have yet to not have a microaggression uh, passed against me on a daily basis for as long as I can remember knowing what a microaggression was. Um, so until that stops, until I stop seeing it, until I stop hearing it, until I stop seeing other children experience it or talking to parents who experience that, 
I think you should talk to your children as much as you need to when it's age appropriate and as they can handle it. I do want to get your reaction to this because it just happened uh, a, a couple of days ago here in Georgia and the state legislature passed what was considered a divisive concept on college campus on, in educational settings. And I want to be very clear, and it is House Bill 1064 because it is, it is quite vague, doesn't give you a whole lot. But there is something in there that's interesting where it talks about prohibiting race scapegoating and race stereotyping. And as they define race scapegoating means assigning fault or blame to a race or to an individual of a particular race because of his or her race. (laughs) I can say very, very, very vague, but it goes on to say such terms includes but is not limited to any claim that an individual of a particular race consciously and by virtue of his or her race is inherently racist or is inherently inclined to oppress individuals of other races. That's actually in the statute. Professor Davis, you're smiling. What do you make of that? I, I, I really wish they could have taken an intro to philosophy from somebody. It's just, <laughs> it's, just, it's just bad. It's just bad. Why is that? Because there are multiple ways of approaching this. Let's look at one. Do I teach them about American history? It's just that easy. Do you tell them this? How did they get here? Why did they get here? It's really absolutely impossible to avoid those conversations. But if they try to, let's walk this way. To claim that you don't align, I guess, bad behavior with an entire class, that's fine. That's overgeneralization, of course. But the problem is, on the other side, the overgeneralization is anyone who's in the class of objects known as Black will suffer certain negative repercussions. Mm -hmm. So all white people did not perform, but all black people are victim of performance that they do not choose. So the idea is you can suffer as a member of an oppressed group universally, universally. You're, you're eligible, even if some individuals will say, well, I've never experienced it, but you're eligible in ways. Sister Burton is eligible for certain treatment that I'm not. She, and I must be honest about that and say it's because she's a black woman She's going to have different experiences. We're not trying to get into a suffering Olympics. Right. What we are trying to do is give an account of the fundamental differences that allay certain fears of white people by saying, well, it's not me. Yeah, but lead, follow, or get out of the way is the old phrase. So you can't stand in the middle of the road. You can't be lukewarm. So the idea has to be, how is that you're going to understand the history of this country such that you will not tell the story in the best possible ways. And that is, how do you get John Punch 1640 in Virginia, right? He is now forced to be an enslaved black for life when the two white servants merely went back to work. I mean, this is amazing. Do you skip those stories? Do you skip talking Frederick Douglass? Do you skip Absalom Jones? Do you, I mean, literally what you're saying is something is transpiring that I don't want to talk about because it may make you feel uncomfortable. And I think that is anti-intellectual and disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Professor Hobson, I read some of the language in that bill, which, and again, want to be fair, it has not been signed by Governor Kemp, but Governor Brian Kemp has in, indicated by all means that he will sign this legislation. I want to be clear, too, it does not write out ban CRT or even the 1619 project. Well, we'll get to it a little bit later. But you heard some of the, the provisions that I read there. You know, and... But a part of the problem is this, too, is how we teach history, K through 12 and in college. And let me tell you what I'm saying is, you know, we, we all know the saying in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And we, we've allowed 
ourselves to think that history is full of these cliches and this narrative that has been kind of created. And I actually try to push against that. Uh, I, I do that with my 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 with children in the community, with my own child. Uh, I do this with my college students is I always try to take young people into the archive. And what you do is when you take a young people into the archive and you let them see evidence, you let them see archival data and evidence, it allows for them to come up with their own understandings of things. So, so I'll give you all an example of something. One of the greatest archives in the city of Atlanta and in the nation is right here on Auburn Avenue, the Auburn Avenue Research Library of African-American History and Culture. In this, oftentimes I'll go and talk to my students and I'll say, how many of you all have heard of slavery? The students will raise their hands and then I'll say something like, well, you know, what do you know about it? And they'll go based on what they read in a textbook or what they heard. Well, what we'll do at Auburn Avenue Research Library is they have a set of shackles mm -hmm. that enslaved a five-year-old child. And, if, and they will pull them out and you can see them and you can even still smell the human flesh on the shackles. When a young person, black, white, LGBTQIA, blue, green, Muslim, Catholic, when they see that, gives them a whole different perspective. So it doesn't necessarily indict a race of people, but it does indict an aspect of the abuse of power. And so I think that one of the things that we must do is we have to be more inclusive in terms of how we're deliberating these narratives and taking our young people into the archives. Shout out to Auburn Avenue and the, the National Archives and Emory's Archives. I mean, great archive. The Atlanta University Center Archives. Shout out to all of those institutions. Professor Burton. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, first of all, I, I can't see how anybody can sign this bill because it's so poorly written. Um, and if you read it, I mean, I would encourage anybody just read it. You can download it um, online. Uh, it is so vaguely written to be so broad that if it is signed into law, you can basically say, I don't like what you said. I don't like that you taught Columbus uh, that he came to America, even though he died in the West Indies. So you're fired. Uh, I don't like um, that you made um, you know, my son feel bad because Pocahontas was kidnapped when she was 12 years old and we uh, made her look like a grown woman in media um, mm -hmm. over the years. We've highly sexualized her and what this is and what this means for Native or Indigenous populations and uh, in general and Native and Indigenous women uh, specifically. Right. Um, it's just it's so broad and so vague and it doesn't have any specifics in it that it just leaves the door open for anything to be. Um, seen as divisive or um as you know something that it, it, they talked about you know making someone feel judged i'm like how do you measure someone feeling judged we're not psychologists most most uh college professors um are not psychologists there are departments of psychology but we're not all psychologists like the uh the language is so um um, vague, but also it projects a lot of whatever, whoever is writing this onto the document. And mm -hmm. so it's like, you should just get therapy and get yourself together and leave the rest of us out of it. We don't need a whole document to tell us um, how we should feel or what this makes you feel. How do you know this makes someone feel bad? How do you know they're not curious or intellectually curious about something? How do you know that if I find out that, you know, um, I'm descendants of slaves that I'm gonna feel bad about it for the rest of the day or the night or whatever. Like you don't know these things. Information is information. It's supposed to be provided um, with, with context, uh, right? And then you are supposed to allow people, this is what we do in journalism, Rose, mm -hmm. uh, to make up their own minds, to come to their conclusions based on what Dr. Hobson is talking about and Dr. Davis, the evidence that is present. present. The evidence, factual evidence. So evidence-based learning, evidence-based research, whatever you want to call it, 
Um, that is what is taught and should be taught. Um, but to have this blanket statement that, you know, if you make me feel bad, I can go and, and uh, you know, ask for your records and you have to give them to me in a certain number of days. And then I can come back and talk to you about, I mean, you know, teachers, we already, teachers are underpaid. They're undervalued. Uh, we live in an anti-intellectual society. We live in a country and a state that is taking money away from teachers. Um, so now you want to, and then we're wondering like, why are teachers leaving in droves, right? Uh, so now we're going to say, oh, by the way, if I don't like what you said in class, a factual, uh, accurate, historical fact I'm going to subpoena your uh, records. You're going to have to take time out and do all of that. And then you're going to have to justify what you've done. And if uh, you don't, then I can fire you, fine you, or do whatever. That's nonsense. So I think that, that, that they need to stop pretending that they're doing some good to society. They're creating more division, more categories of craziness, um, and it needs to stop. And I have a, a comment from a listener here, and I think it's important because I always have you all on. I try to we try to have a very diverse. There's that word again, uh, a diverse pool of guests, different ideologies, political affiliations, what have you. This listener says, when will we be able to get white people to take part in this kind of conversation? Because I, I made a I made a pledge to myself a long time ago. I was going to stop asking people of color, as my daddy would say, folks of color, how you feel about racism? Because I already know how they feel. The question is, what are we going to do collectively? But it's not just what people of color should do about it. It's what other folks who have the issue should do about it. So, Professor Davis, when you this listener says, when will we be able to get white people to take part in this kind of conversation? How do you respond to that? Let me call on the wonderful spirit of the beloved Toni Morrison. <laughs> ah, I mean, yes. A similar question posed to her about her writing. Don't ask Rose Scott, when are you going to these other stations and ask them to privilege whiteness. I mean, the thing is, it seems weird that this many black people can appear in public at one time and not be considered a gang. I mean, this is amazing. And so the issue is that it, you don't have an aversion to the thoughts of the multitude, vo multitude of voices of whiteness. The issue is when do we get to articulate consistently, systematically, how we understand what has transpired over the years? And I mean, 400 at a minimum. And so it's amazing to me, as Toni Morrison said, you don't ask the non-Blacks about privileging the choices that they make and the choices that they make are not as diverse. I mean, right here, we have diversity. I grew up rather rather impoverished, right? I went to certain schools that were uh, underserved and, um, and, and without lack, I mean, with lack of resources. What we've determined to be diversity is skewed. And so there's a difference between the assumption that is made about all black people being alike, such that they can look at us and assume that we agree. I know Brother Hobson and I don't. I love that brother because we disagree. He makes me better because we disagree. So stop looking. The, what you see is not what is real. And so I haven't gotten in an argument with Sister um, Burton yet, but I'm sure we disagree <laughs> on many topics. It's on the way. On many topics. And so my point, very sure, I mean, it's that stop assuming that there's a lack of diversity because we we are members of a group, mm -hmm. right? Nobody should do that. And this is the question. This is what's a, a, a before us now. When you sit in front of a group of people, what assumptions do you make about the ideological structures that give them meaning to their lives? Don't think that you know prima facie. Have a conversation. All right, Professor Hobson. You know, this has been a conversation that I've had several times and uh, it's always interesting. Um, uh, Leadership Atlanta is one of the groups that I've been able to engage uh, with this. 
we there there are there are white people out here who are willing to have these conversations. I teach them all the time. I engage them all the time. And but and the thing about it too is, and this is I, I have to be critical of of black folk when it, what it, with what I'm about to say. Sometimes black America gets tired of what we call white splain. Like we get tired of it, and it's like we we do this six uh, six ways to Sunday. But sometimes we do have to be patient enough to teach. And and I guess what I'm saying is that, um, you know, some of the ways in which I'm able to kind of really get folks to understand, like the 14th Amendment, equal protection and due process under the law, is I'll do it from a perspective of um, helping them to understand that lynchings that have taken place Mm -hmm. is because the lynch mob was the judge and jury. And so the thing about it is they they didn't have their day in court. And when you're able to kind of do it in ways, but you do it from a, a place of me acknowledging my own privilege. Uh, I am I am a black male. Um, I am privileged in 11 of the 13 categories that they lay out. And the thing about this is as a, as a man, I, I often tell this story about going to a football game with my wife and she getting upset at the football stadium because there weren't enough bathrooms for women. And as a man, I was like, I had no idea. She taught me something. And then I said, I have to become an ally on, at every point in time. And so the thing about it is we do have to have the time to explain with hopes that we can get some folks to become allies and be able to carry the message. And, and I'm saying that from a perspective of being in the cut and having to try to explain all of these different things. And I'm tired until my head hurts, mm-hmm. but I still have to take that time to teach. Professor Burton, I'll give you the last word on this and this whole idea when will we be able to get white people to take part in this kind of conversation? Yeah, well, um, Rose, first of all, I want to thank you uh, because having a panel this um, diverse, and we actually are very diverse in thought. Um, you should see our text threads. <laughs> We're very diverse in thought. Um, but this is rare. Um, at one point, especially on television, especially on the news, you only had white people talking about race, right? And still, if you look at the national uh, broadcasts, if you look at cable television, uh, if you look at some channels in particular, it's still overwhelmingly white um, in terms of who gets to talk about these issues. So uh, we live in Atlanta and I often tell people Atlanta is not indicative or reflective of the rest of America. So, you know, we love Atlanta because, you know, you can have WABE, a local NPR station and have three black scholars at three different institutions on at one time, but that's highly unusual and highly irregular. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just caution the uh, the viewer um, to uh, remember that we are in Atlanta and this is highly unusual and there are plenty of white people. We work with uh, plenty of white folk who share our ideas, ideologies, philosophies, um, that are critical race scholars, which people keep acting like it's just black folks, but there are a lot of white folks who are critical race scholars, um, some who are not uh, um, as kind to people of, um, African descent and what have you. Um, but you know, there is, there are plenty of white folks who are writing books, uh, who are presenting at academic panels who are all over television talking about this very issue. Um, but one of the ways in which, uh, this issue becomes a black issue is because of how it's presented, uh, in media by those who, um, are against critical thinking, critical race theory and things of that nature. So they make make it look like we are the only ones who are interested in this. We are the only ones who do this type of work thus. And so because of how racism is uh, a structure in our country, systemic, then it must be less than, you know, critical race theory is less than because Derek Bell is a black man who came up with it. Right. 
Um, and so I would just I would just let people know that there are lots of different populations. South Asian folks are killing it in this area. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> um, who, are, who are doing this kind of work. Um, and so uh, there are white folks who are out there um, who are doing that work. And sometimes people need to hear this from white people. All right. They are the big three for the reason I told y'all. They're like my academic Fugees. I love it. And Singer Burton, the co-director of the Film and Media Management Concentration at Emory University in the Department of Film and Media and the editor-in-chief of the Burton Wire. Also, Ilya Davis, a philosophy professor at the Morehouse College and the director of New Students and Transition Programs. Maurice Hobson, historian and associate professor of Africana Studies and the vice chair of the Scholarship and Creative Board for Georgia State Center for Studies on Africa and its Diaspora. As always, compelling conversation. I'm going to get y'all some shirts that say Closer Looks Big Three just for y'all. Thank you so much. We're back in a moment. Hang with us. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. From WABE right here in Atlanta, this is a special edition of Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. As we continue with today's conversations regarding the teaching of topics related to race and racism, I'm joined now by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project and staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. As many of you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones continues to cover topics including racial injustice here in the United States. Nicole Hannah-Jones, welcome to Closer Look. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I should have had you in that first segment. It was lively. We could have just had a big old party. <laughs> Let's begin here uh, through your lens. And, and I say that a lot on this program. The difference between teaching about racism and educating about racism. How do you see that? Um, it's an interesting question. Clearly, those two things are related. But I think teaching is um, in some ways just giving certain facts but not really helping uh, to provide analyses with those facts, not contextualizing those facts. So you can teach something and someone can still come away not educated about it. Uh, you can teach that racism happened. Uh, you can teach that, um, you know, certain facts of our history. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that the child is ultimately coming away uh, educated about how racial injustice works, how systemic racism works, or even uh, the prevalence of anti-Blackness in the American story. So I, I see those as being the difference. You've said on a number of occasions, and I've heard you speak, you've said that, I'm going to quote you here, race and racism is foundational to the United States. Before there was the United States, it was decided that black Americans would not be treated as human beings, but as property. And that alone has been targeted by so many. And and I know you get this question a lot. And so forgive me, but I think it's important through my lens as the journalist and host that people understand why you begin with that 
when, when we have this whole conversation about how we talk about this? Well, because it's true. And that's why I don't understand. I mean, the, the 1619 Project is a series of essays making an argument. And you can certainly disagree with some of the arguments that we're being made, that uh, we're making. You can say, well, I, I don't find those arguments to be convincing for whatever reason. But you can't argue with pure facts of history. Mm-hmm. And the pure facts of history are that um, every other American who immigrated to the United States came here because they chose to come here. That black people, African people were the only people who were being sold against their will um, and who had uh, the codification of laws that were defining and constraining their lives based on race. And that begins in 1619. Um, So that separation, that belief that uh, African people were not fully human, that they were chattel, that they were property that could be bought and sold, that um, they were not to be governed by laws as people, but to be governed as property. So for instance, you couldn't rape an enslaved woman uh, because uh, you couldn't rape an animal. And if you um, killed an enslaved person or harmed an enslaved person, your claim was to the owner of that person, Mm -hmm. not to uh, the person who actually did the harm to. So these are just facts of our history. Um, Slavery, African slavery, racialized slavery predates the founding of our country by 150 years. And at the founding of our country, uh, it is a major issue of concern, so much so that it is in uh, both the Declaration of Independence uh, and in the Constitution. So to me, the fact that people would find that surprising or upsetting uh, speaks to how thoroughly we have not been taught uh, a correct and accurate rendering of history. And I'll ask you one of the same questions I asked the guests of the first segment, because now we've seen not just here in Georgia, but other states, too, in terms of legislation or policies in an attempt to restrict or ban what's considered divisive concepts. And I asked them that. I'm going to ask you that. And when you hear that term, you know, what are you thinking? Well, we should be clear that these so-called anti-critical race theory laws are anti-history laws. They are memory laws. Um, uh, Anti-CRT has been an immensely successful propaganda campaign. And the laws are meant to be vague. They are intentionally vague. Uh, They are uh, designed uh, to appear not to do what it is that they're doing. And they are designed to be... um, Uh, enforced in a very arbitrary way. So what is a divisive concept? None of us know. Uh, But what we do know is it's signaling to white parents particularly that if if there's a history, if there are lessons uh, that you think are uncomfortable, that those lessons can be targeted. So let's just think about this idea uh, in my work. I get accused of creating divisive work. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that is that... uh, work that actually points out the facts of racism, the facts of racial inequality, the facts of our history is divisive, but not talking about those things, even though uh, those things are still shaping our society, even though we have grave inequality, even though people are voting on racial issues. Uh, but if we don't talk about them, then that is somehow unifying. Um, so that that is what this language is about, is to pretend that those who actually want to acknowledge and address racial d- justice or injustice 
are the people who are dividing us and those who want to benefit from the systems but pretend they don't exist are the ones who are unifying us. And so often you know then that folks get a lot, a lot wrong about what is critical race theory, what it's supposed to be and what it's not. And then you have to counter with, well, let me tell you what it is not. And what do you tell them? Uh, I don't spend a lot of time saying what critical race theory is not because, mm-hmm. again, I think to do that is to engage in the, the propaganda campaign on the terms of the propagandists. What I do say is critical race theory is um, a sophisticated analysis of American society that seeks to understand why 60 years after the end of codified legal discrimination, we still see so much racial inequality. And it simply argues that structures that were put in place over the course of 350 years uh, still shape society, whether individual white Americans are racist or not, that those structures are self-replicating. And I don't, again, think that that's a radical thing. I think that when advocates uh, played on the terms of propagandists by spending a lot of time saying, oh, critical race theory is not being taught in schools. It's not being taught in schools. Instead of saying um, it should be taught in schools, that we should teach our children a sophisticated analysis of their societies, that um, this is not something dangerous. We played on the terms of people who wanted us to be on the defensive about something that actually is, is, is not um, something that should be prohibited from being taught. I have a question and a comment here from a listener who says the fact that business and industry, chambers of commerce, for example, which have come out against the so-called don't say gay bill, religious freedom bills, et cetera, have been completely silent on these anti-CRT bills. In Georgia, students have been very vocal and voiced in opposition to the bills. But big companies that came out in support of Black Lives Matter, et cetera, are suddenly silent. And these students are going to are their future employees. Ask your guest how she feels about that, or does she have a reflection on that? Yeah, this is something that um, I've been talking about quite a bit. Um, I believe that businesses should be coming out strongly against Don't Say Gay. I think they should be coming out strongly against uh, these anti-trans bills that are targeting uh, trans children and their families. But I also, of course, have noticed that there has not been... um, a massive pushback on behalf of corporations against these anti-history laws, Mm -hmm. uh, which are seen to be targeting black Americans. Um, And I, I I want to see some good analysis of why that is. I have my thoughts about why that is. Um, But for instance, in Florida, the same day that uh, DeSantis signed into law, the don't say gay bill, he also signed into a law that prohibits corporations from doing diversity and inclusion training. Mm-hmm. Now, that law is specifically targeting business. And yet Disney did not come out against that bill. Um, so I think there's a lot of questions around um, what is acceptable and what is not. And uh, gay Americans are extremely targeted. Uh, what I've been saying is all of these bills are really trying to uh, stoke resentment against marginalized groups for political gain. And they tend to target, you know, black folks, trans folks, gay folks all at the same time. I just wish our allies uh, were willing to fight as hard against all of those areas. And I have another question here from a listener who wants to know, with your 1619 project, could you even, read it correctly, could you you even have anticipated the backlash, Ms. Hannah Jones? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. I was I, 
I mean, I knew that there was going to be some backlash, of course. I mean, it's, some of this was predictable. You don't create a project like this in the New York Times that argues that we were founded on slavery and not freedom, mm -hmm. that Black people have been the most democratizing force uh, in the history of this country, and not expect pushback. But I could not have imagined, you know, that the project would be banned all over the country, including uh, attempts to ban it in Georgia, Florida, Texas. Uh, that I would be targeted by everyone from Donald Trump to powerful senators to the secretary of state under the Trump administration. Um, no, I, I, I couldn't have predicted any of that. I want to ask you another question to ask the big three, too. When we start talking about race and racism and they all agreed that, you know what, maybe you start cr cradling this conversation in love first, particularly with little, little ones. What is your viewpoint on when do, should we start talking about racism with students? Uh, as soon as students are able to observe their world. I mean, this is the thing when um, white parents have the luxury of saying, you know, we have to wait until a certain appropriate age to introduce these ideas to their children. Mm -hmm. uh, Black parents, uh, Latino parents, Asian parents, indigenous parents, we don't have that luxury because the world is going to introduce this to our children. And so we have to decide, as I did, you know, we were talking about, I can't remember when we weren't talking about race. Um, my daughter got her first book on slavery when she was three years old. Uh, we've always talked about the civil rights movement. We've talked about, uh, you know, what's happening in society because I needed to build in my child an understanding of how the world would perceive and treat her before the world did that to her. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you find, if you spend any time around children, they are capable of quite sophisticated analysis. They have a, a strong sense of right and wrong and what is fair and what is just. Um, and I think we can introduce in age appropriate ways, of course, um, all of these concepts to children from a young age. Let me ask you, Nicole Hannah-Jones, because with what you just said in terms of the backlash, is there a different conversation that you have when it's people of color or black folks, if you have encountered that, that took issues with the 1619 Project? Yeah, I mean, um, most of the most of the criticism of the project has not been black folks, obviously. Sure. And uh, I would say the most um, legitimate criticism from black folks has been that perhaps the project is too patriotic. Um, really? That yeah, you know, some folks believe that. Um, in some ways, the project buys into these ideas of American exceptionalism. It just places Black people as kind of the heroes in the story. So there's been some criticism in that way. Um, but the criticism, and, and I'm willing to have that conversation. I don't necessarily agree. And, and I say all the time, I, uh, I'm i conflicted even about some of the arguments in the 1619 Project. I mean, I would hope that any major ambitious work um, would be up for debate. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, like all um, major intellectuals, that your mind changes over time, uh, that you don't think the same way about things um, throughout your entire life. Uh, but much of the criticism uh, from white Americans has really been about um, feeling white people didn't get enough credit in the story, mm -hmm. not wanting to emphasize so much, uh, you know, how foundational slavery and anti-blackness is, that it's not optimistic enough. And I, I don't think that that's legitimate criticism at all. That it's not optimistic Absolutely. enough? Yes. Yes. You know, the way many... Interesting way of... <laughs> it is. Well, because what 
the second to the last essay in the book is written by Ibram X. Kendi and it's called Progress. Mm-hmm. And I think it really taps on into this kind of fundamental aspect of American identity, which is this belief in progress. And so we're okay to say, you know, yes, things were bad back then, but we worked really hard. And we were always making progress. So things are better than they used to be and they're gonna keep getting better. So why do you have to keep focusing so much on the ugly things? What about the great things uh, that this country has done? Um, but that's not the point of a project on slavery, right? Absolutely. And in no other case uh, is that expectation. You're not going to do a story about the Holocaust and say, well, why don't you talk about the great things <laughs> that came that happened at the same time? But that's the expectation is that we can't talk about, uh, we have to balance the bad out with, with more good. Um, and the project doesn't seek to do that. Is there a follow-up to something like the 1619 Project that should be in the works or you think is in the works? Or it, it, it is what it, it stands alone on what it is. Um, I mean, we're certainly uh, right now we're in production on the 1619 documentary series. Uh, it's a five part series. It's going to air next year on ABC and Hulu. Uh, we're going to do a young readers, uh, middle grade readers edition of the 1619 book. Um, and yeah, I think there, there are other works that, that will come out of the 1619 project, but as, as for the kind of original mm-hmm. text of the book, that is what it's going to be. And then finally, as we wrap up, I want to talk about us folks, us journalists here. And what have you noticed how even journalists in terms of talking about the 1619 Project or CRT, are there concerns concerns you have that maybe we're not doing enough or perhaps we're not even defining it accurately? And then some folks don't even know anything about the project. They just know there is a project, but they have not took a deep dive into the project. Yes. I mean, I, I find in general, uh, much of the reporting, both about my project and this concept of critical race theory um, over overall is is lacking in sophistication. Uh, I don't think that um, I think many journalists tend to define the, my project in terms of the criticism. Um, which the criticism compared to the positive response is uh, just minute, but there's a lot of focus on that. I think there's a lot of journalists who have discomfort with the arguments of the project with critical race theory, who also believe that the so-called racial reckoning of 2020 went too far um, and that we're in a necessary correction. Because as you know, uh, journalists are human beings and journalists come out of the general population. And so all of those uh, prejudices and, and ideas and worldviews that we see in the rest of America, journalists have, they just pretend that they don't. And I think a lot of the coverage that we've seen around these laws um, is reflective of the biases of, of many journalists. So, I'll, yes. I always say my job is to be fair, not to be objective. And woof, you see the emails. That's right. Fair <laughs> and accurate. That's what I say. That objectivity is possible, but fairness and accuracy is something to strive for. And it also goes back to someone that we always pay homage to, which is Ida B. Wells. So we know that. Absolutely. Nicole Ida Jones, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. If folks want to find out more about the 1619 Project, I, I feel silly saying this, but you can go ahead and tell them how to find out. <laughs> yeah, um, you can um, go online at the New York Times, just Google 1619 Project, and the books are available everywhere that uh, you sell books. So support your independent bookseller. 
Thank you so much. That is it for this special edition of Closer Look. Thanks to all of you who joined us virtually and, of course, to our guests, our producers, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Today's live broadcast was produced by Samantha Killebrew. For more information about this program, check out our website, wabe.org slash Closer Look, as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.